You're listening to the OMFIF podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and discussions on global finance, economics, and policy for people who love staying informed about the rapidly evolving landscape of the financial world. Join us as we break down complex topics, interview key thought leaders, and provide essential insights to keep you informed about the evolving world of finance. Hello, this is Mark Sobel, U.S. Chair OMFIF. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Greg Makoff to discuss his just-published book, Default, the Landmark Court Battle over Argentina's $100 billion Debt Restructuring. It's a fascinating book covering the last two decades of Argentine external financial and economic developments, a topic that was a challenging, unhappy, yet vivid, painful, and pronounced chapter of my U.S. Treasury career. Greg is an expert on sovereign debt from 1993 through 2014. Greg was at Solomon Brothers and Citigroup, specializing in debt advisory, liability management, and derivatives for sovereign borrowers, corporations, and financial institutions. He closely worked during his tenure with Colombia, Philippines, and Jamaica, among others. And befitting a sovereign debt expert, Greg holds a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard's prestigious Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government. And to those who might be listening and you're thinking this is a topic which will make my eyes glaze over and you fear a descent down the technical rabbit hole of sovereign debt law, let me comfort you and give you my assurance that Greg's book is highly accessible, readable, and not dense at all. So Greg, great book. Thanks for joining me. If it's okay with you, I'd like to start off with a few questions covering the litigation timeline laid out in the book and then turn to a few thematic questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great fun. Looking forward to it. But first, before I dig in, can you tell me for a minute or two, what on earth prompted you to write this book and what led you to write it as a sort of legal financial thriller rather than taking a more traditional approach? Well, I thought something was missing from the literature. You have the legal literature and the economic literature, which dominates sovereign debt writings. And the economics literature is full of equations. The legal literature is full of case citations, and what was missing was the negotiations. And as a practitioner, I'm like, what if I write a book about how these deals really work, what it's like to be in the room? And so starting out in early 2017, after working at Treasury for a year on Puerto Rico, I said the Argentina deal had just settled the litigation in April 2016 after going on for 15 years. And I said, why don't I write about that one? the biggest, messiest, most contentious debt restructuring in history, that would make for a good book. So that's why I did it. Well, more power to you. So the first section of your book covers the period from Argentina's late 2001 default through the completion of its debt restructuring in mid-2005. Uh, I recall Argentina's horrific economic collapse, riots in the street, the default, the devaluation. And if that wasn't bad enough, the bond default took almost four years to clean up because Argentina had unimaginable fights, first with the IMF and then with its creditors. Your book is primarily about uh, the litigation. So why do you spend the first 100 pages on this context? Let me comment on the fights second. But first, I focus on this early part because to understand the litigation, you need to understand four very unusual things Argentina did in its 2005 deal. First, it did its deal without the support of the IMF. 
Second, it did not do an exit consent to strip covenants, including its Perry Passu covenants, from its bonds, something other issuers like Uruguay and Ecuador had done. Third, it added a price match guarantee or most favored nation clause, which made it impossible to settle with holdouts for 10 years because it would have been obliged to give any additional value it gave in subsequent settlements to original settle settlers. And fourth, and not the least important, was the lock law. Argentina, midway through doing the transaction, wanted to add some insurance that people took its deal by adding a threatening measure. The Argentine Congress passed a law forbidding the Argentine executive from settling with holdouts, making another offer into the eternal ire of Judge Thomas P. Grisey in New York, it would not be allowed to pay court judgments. These four factors are critically important to how the litigation played out. Now, the contentiousness of Argentina's relationship with the IMF and with creditors during this negotiation process is very important. If you want to understand how sovereign debt works, sovereign debt negotiation, the first step is for a country to reach a consensus with the IMF on an economic plan and the envelope and boundaries of a sovereign debt restructuring and a complete failure of Argentina in the IMF to see eye to eye is one of the reasons this all went bad Argentina broke with the IMF and sold its deal on threats. Despite all this, objectively, Argentina's 2005 debt restructuring was very successful. The country achieved a 76% participation rate despite demanding of creditors a 66% nominal haircut, sweetened with some GDP warrants. To be sure, that was a great deal if you just look at, at it as a debt restructuring person. Sure, there were 24% holdouts, which was about 20 billion nominal of bonds. But if you can assume those would be handled reasonably, it would have been a good outcome for the country. Of course, the latter two thirds of the book are how the holdouts weren't handled very well and it became a nightmare. The economists' comment on the deal in early March 2005 was that Argentina talked tough and won for now. The economists for now, however, was not about the holdout problem. The economists' comment was, if Argentina does not complete much-needed reforms, it will be back in economic trouble. Maybe we can discuss that on another day. <laughs> Argentina and economic trouble go hand in hand. But as you said, 24% uh, of the holders with about $20 billion in bonds held out, and many of them sued quite a bit after 2005. And only in 2010 did Argentina finally reopen the deal to give holdouts a second chance to come in. So can you give us a quick synopsis of the key events in the 2005-2010 period? And, and what are the big lessons learned from this part of the litigation? The last two parts of the book are about sovereign debt litigation, but they couldn't be more different. 
this middle part from 2005, 2010 is chaotic, disorderly, sovereign debt litigation. The last third was completely coordinated. So in this 2005 to 2010 period, the deal has finished. A lot of creditors are aggrieved. They didn't think the deal was fair. They didn't feel it was negotiated the right way. And many sued. They held out. They sued a broad group of investors, hold out investors like Elliott, other sophisticated funds. But there was a group of 200,000 retail investors from Italy who jointly sued and actually filed an arbitration claim. In this section, you have hundreds of lawsuits filed. You have dozens of attachment efforts. This is the sovereign debt litigation we all sort of heard about, attachment. These plaintiffs went after bank accounts, bond accounts, an airplane, a military ship, a ship full of liquefied natural gas on the high seas, central bank reserves at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Brady Bond collateral at the Central Bank Reserves of New York. It went on and on and on. And in these chapters, I we go through that. And in some cases, there's transcripts. You're actually in the room as the plaintiffs are presenting the arguments. But what we learn is it doesn't work. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 sets a very high bar to attachment. It makes it easy to sue, but hard to attach. And the Argentina cases prove that without a doubt. Only two attachments really worked, and those were engineered by Elliot working with, with DART. These, from a plot perspective, all these failures really mattered. It was a game of catch and release. So the plaintiffs would run in and find something. They would get a temporary attachment because in a one-sided hearing where they go to the judge, say, I found this asset at the central bank. Let's attach it or else Argentina will spirit it out of the country. So they get an attachment. Two weeks later, there's a hearing with Argentina coming, arguing Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and all the facts and circumstances. And the judge reads it and says, yes, Argentina's right. You did not meet the tests, release. Catch and release. And so it's a failure. And Judge Grisey, writing opinion after opinion, hearing after hearing, judgment after judgment, for five years is wasting a lot of time, what he called fruitless activity. And he asks in court again and again, why am I doing this with my life? And gets more and more frustrated that Argentina is not helping him solve the problem. So in this period, we learn a lot about how that works and we get to know, see Judge Grisey getting madder, but Argentina takes advantage of it. Their strategy of being difficult in court works because in 2010, Argentina reopens the offer in two thirds of the holdouts of the approximately 20 million take the deal and you're left with somewhat less than 7 billion. Those plaintiffs were tired of not getting paid for five years. Those who took Argentina's offer in 2005, as difficult as it was, they were all getting paid all their principal and interest as due. They were getting good payments on their GDP warrants. Those who held out weren't getting a penny. And so two-thirds capitulated, took the deal. Argentina's got 92% accepting its deal on historically great terms. So Argentina is actually looking like a winner here, but they're left with the last 
of plaintiffs, and those are your hardcore plaintiffs who are going to fight hard. And that sets up the third act. Thank you. And of course, it's difficult to attach assets when they're overseas, particularly in the BIS, for example. Um, so let's move to the last part of your book's timeline, as you just set up. Uh, and this is the one focused on Judge Grisey's decision to impose the pari passu injunction on Argentina. In this period, holders of the last $7 billion of the bond continue to litigate so hard it made the earlier uh, litigation look like child's play. What made this phase of the litigation different than the earlier period? And why did Judge Grisey impose the injunction? And maybe you can give us a quick synopsis how the litigation was finally settled in 2016, highlighting the role of lifting the injunction in that deal. And if you need to do a 10 second explanation of pari passu and equal payments and rateable, equal, equally rateable, that might be helpful. <laughs> Thank you. The big thing here is the injunction. And it's such an extraordinary ruling it's worth repeating exactly what it was. Judge Grisey wrote an order, an injunction, blocking Argentina's ability to pay on about $30 billion of performing bonds. Those bondholders who had accepted its 2005 offer and its 2010 reopening, blocking its ability to pay performing bonds unless and until it paid the holdout creditors. The justification was this peri passu clause that said that Argentina needed to treat all its bondholders, its external creditors equally. Argentina hadn't paid a penny since 2005 to any of the holdouts while it was paying in full the payments owed under the restructured bonds to those who had taken the deal and Looking at that, with that argument, the courts, Judge Grisey and then the Second Circuit, approved this injunction to block the payments. And Argentina could comply with the clause two ways. It could pay neither, go back into default, or it could pay Elliott and the other holdouts in full next time they made an interest payment on the holdout bonds. Now, Judge Grisey did not want to make this ruling. He did not want to potentially interfere with the payment on performing bonds. And mind you, albeit late in the game, holders of exchange bonds went into court and said, do not do this. This is against the constitution. You can't in interfere with our contract rights. But they came in too late. The decisions were already made. Judge Grisey didn't want to do it. And this is where the drama and the action is completely different than the second part of the book. The second part is chaotic litigation brought by lots of different parties eating up Judge Grisey's calendar. This is a different kind of mental torture. Judge Grisey is in court not wanting to impose this injunction, but for the plaintiffs, you have the best lawyer in the country, as far as I'm concerned. Theodore Olson from Gibson Dunn, the former Solicitor General, famous conservative lawyer who, who won Bush versus Gore, Citizens United, and marriage equality rights case working with David Boyce, fantastic lawyer, is 
brought to bear to convince him that the only way to deal with this situation is to impose this injunction. And in this fabulous hearing in February 2012, he gets Judge Grisey over the line. That's really the emotional peak of the whole story, but it doesn't work out as he expected. Judge Grisey thought Argentina would pay and it would be simple and over with, and we all know it went on for a couple of years and wasn't settled until a change in government where Mauricio Macri came in and said, I'm going to settle this. This has gone on too far. I'm going to be reasonable. He dispatched his new Secretary of Finance and Undersecretary of Finance to New York to talk to an arbitrator, Special Master Daniel Pollack, who was appointed by the court to try to settle the problem. They talked to Special Master Pollack, and it was reflected to Judge Grisey that this new government was serious about settling. And they worked him over. They showed him math about how much money the plaintiffs were going to make on their these funny Fran bonds where they were going to make 10 times their money, all sorts of details in the book about that stuff, and convinced the special master that it was the fair thing for all the parties for him to lift the injunction. But what Argentina did was quickly settled with three key plaintiffs to prove good faith. Settled with the remaining 60,000 of Italian investors, settled with two of the hedge funds. Then they launched this offer with the same terms settled in good faith with those three creditors and went to the court, says, I'm acting like a reasonable country now. Would you lift the injunction? Judge Grisey lifted the injunction, I'm sure quite happily at that point. And that forced the remaining hardcore of creditors to come in and take basically the same deal. Because why? What we learned in part two, attachment doesn't pay. The only leverage they ever had was from the injunction. And when that game was up, the lawsuits were over. Quite a dramatic ending. Um, making it current, the secretary of finance that was sent to solve this problem and did a great job was Luis Caputo, who's now the minister of economy, and his deputy undersecretary, with Santiago Basili, who's now the head of the central bank. And so in Argentina, this story goes on and on, but sometimes the same names come back. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for wetting appetites to read the book. Uh, listening to you and reflecting on my uh, U.S. Treasury career, I, I took many things away from the saga and ordeal, but two stood out. One, as a lawyer once told me, bad cases make for bad case law. And two, as, a, as sovereign debt litigation became far more frequent and, and intense after the 80s and 90s, uh, the official community focused uh, early on on what was called the rogue creditor. And there was much to back up that worldview. But major problems can also be caused by a rogue debtor. And in that regard, while I appreciate that negotiations involve taking tough positions by opposing parties and bluster and poker faces, I always believe that had Argentina not been so truculent, the country might have fared far better and not cut off its nose to spite itself. In any case, at Treasury, there was utter dismay and extreme unhappiness with Argentina's bellicosity. We opposed all MDB lending to Argentina. But as noted in U.S. amicus briefs, as much as the U.S. was interested in seeing good faith discussions between creditors and debtors, there was deep concern about the implications of court rulings for the orderliness 
and predictability of the restructuring process, especially given the sharp rise in the volume of litigation. And that's a perfect segue to shifting gears to the more thematic policy level. And given my role at Treasury, you covered well the following topic in your book, which is of great interest for me, namely how the U.S. government policy towards sovereign debt restructuring evolved from the enactment of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in 1976, which you already mentioned, through its involvement in the Argentine cases, including its filing of amicus briefs. And of course, there was quite a bit also going on in the Treasury on sovereign debt policy, also involving debates about uh, sovereign debt bankruptcy mechanisms, and also, uh, more importantly, the advent and uh, usage of collective action clauses. So, uh, Greg, over to you. Thank you. The role of the U.S. evolved over time. And in the most broad sense, first the U.S., but then the G10, and nowadays really the G20, the official sector has a very important oversight leadership to play in everything sovereign debt. And that comes in two ways. It comes both through the court system when the governments get involved, the U.S. government in amicus briefs, and then on the architecture level, when governments get together and work on supporting, whether it's SDRM or collective action clauses, now the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable and the Common Framework and things, those efforts are critically important for sovereign debt restructuring actually working. Now, at the beginning of this story, it was more US dominated. Remember the 80s, we had Baker plans and Brady plans. Um, most of the international debt was in US dollars. It was under New York law and most of the litigation was in the New York courts. That is a historical fact. So the US was involved more than other countries. And the US government's hand evolved over time. In the famous Allied Bank case, which really was the, the a key ruling for the holdouts, Judge Grisey and then the Second Circuit ruled for a holdout in a Costa Rica deal because the banks in New York got really excited when the courts ruled against the holdout and said they couldn't enforce their claim getting a better deal. And the New York banks with the LDC crisis going on said, we can't have any doubt that all debt is enforceable. So the US came in and said, there's got to be no doubt, all sovereign debt is enforceable and every deal has to be voluntary. Basically- and This is in the 1980s. This is 1984. Every single holder gets to choose for themselves whether to take any debt restructuring or not. So when Elliott and other holdouts come along in the 90s, they can look at Allied Bank Brief and say, hey, the U.S. government's official policy is that's our choice and we're going to choose to hold out. There was a strong policy case for it. But as the market shifted from a, a very tightly held loan market where holdouts were not a problem. They were an annoyance at the 1% level to the bond market where bonds are held by tens of thousands of investors all over the world. The primary problem of sovereign debt restructuring becomes coordination and holdout creditor problem. And then in the wake of Argentina's 2001 default, actually two weeks before it, the IMF comes out with the SDRM proposal. And John Taylor responds and reacts with the CACs, the version 1.0 saying, let's have CACs like in English law bonds with single series voting, which Mexico adopts and the market follows with in 2003. 
And before you go, before you yeah. go on, uh, can sovereign SDRM a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism? It was basically a global bankruptcy mechanism. Um, so, in essence, in the U.S., if a unsecured creditor goes belly up, the court basically imposes a solution on everybody, and you don't have that at the international level. So, there are collection act active clauses were developed. It's a contractual way of allowing a supermajority of creditors to be to bind the minority into a restructuring deal. Yeah, exactly. And I'd, I'd phrase it this way. The SDRM, the experts looked at corporate law and said, let's design something that works like a corporate insolvency and has all the same moving parts because it's too chaotic when a sovereign goes default. And the treasury came back and said, you know, this is really tricky in the sovereign context. Let's do the simplest possible thing that gets you almost the same results is what we're missing is a binding mechanism. We can figure out everything except binding all holders once there's a vote. So that's the really important part of bankruptcy is when you have a vote, everybody is bound. And so I would call the treasury version is a slimmed down version of sovereign bankruptcy. But the clever thing is, you put it in bond contracts. So issuers just starting using it and you're done. The prospects for changing US law and French law and German law and UK law to adopt this new international sovereign debt court, that could take 20 years. And so the treasury's object was let's convince the market in New York and they start using it and we're done. And that worked. And I think- I would, I would also just yeah. say uh, at treasury, there was great skepticism about the idea of giving handing sovereignty over to some international mechanism. And there are always concerns about politicization of uh, what might happen. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So, but what's elegant in the story and why I address it in the book is the history of sovereign debt and sovereign debt law is inextricably intertwined with the story of Argentina. You can't tell one without the other going back decades. But in this case, it was Argentina's pending default that led to the SDRM proposal. It was two weeks before everyone knew it was coming. And then it was Argentina's trouble with Perry Passu and Greece's problems in 2012, where the holdouts made Swiss cheese of its international offer that triggered attention to enhance CACs to lower majorities and or have aggregated voting which are 10 times, 20 times more powerful than single series voting. So that's all part of the story. And the U.S. government played a very important role in it. But I would say at the beginning, much more dominant. At the end, it's really convening power. I'm working in a G10 or G20 context because that's the right way to do things now. Great. Yes. Uh, well, as you know, I chaired the group uh, that develop the CACs. It was a team effort and um, convening power is a good way of characterizing Treasury's role. And it was quite a successful operation. And also, we don't have to get into it, but we clarified the pari passu language in a way that would have precluded Grisey from ever making such a ruling again. So thanks for that. You uncovered uh, some pretty startling information about the lobbying of U.S. government officials by the plaintiffs. How'd you dig up the information, and do you think the lobbying changed the outcome of the cases? The short answer is I found tax records, and I don't think 
it changes change the outcome of the cases, but that's arguable. So what happened was the American Task Force Argentina, the lobbying entity of Elliot and the other sophisticated plaintiffs, was this this thing everybody talked about, including in court, and there were occasional pet press releases and mentions and articles, but it was very hard to figure out exactly what was this organization. One day I had the idea of looking for, well, was it a corporation? And in fact, it was incorporated in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And then here was the shocker. It was set up as a 501c4 corporation. I assume so that the payments to it by the plaintiffs would be tax deductible as a business purpose. Great <laughs> for them, but great for me, because when you're a, a charitable organization, you file 990s with the IRS and they stay on the web for seven years. So I downloaded their documents from 2010 to 2017. I don't think you can find them anymore. And they spent, I calculated about $36 million lobbying, way more than anybody would have thought. And it lists which people they hired to do the lobbying. It doesn't detail what they do. But then I found another piece of information was I dug up the American Task Force Argentina website. There's something called the Wayback Machine, which is a web archive. It goes around the world taking a picture of every website in the world every month or two. And so even though people take down their websites, there's a photograph of them. And I found lots of evidence of who were the members, what were they lobbying for, who were they lobbying, and then the story made sense. I put a couple of pages on this. It's part of the story. ATFA fields people at different hearings. It, it makes a lot of noise in the process. There's a lot of lobbying against the U.S. filing amicus briefs, which is the most important reason to mention it. The U.S. eventually pushes the IMF not to deliver an amicus brief to the Supreme Court on Perry Passu. That's addressed. I don't think it changed the outcome because there were so many other problems with the cases. But honestly, I got a couple of pages on this lobbying and the impact on it. Somebody could write a PhD thesis going through all this lobbying stuff interpreting it, talking about the impact on the cases. I give it a mention as it's relevant to the lar larger story and and leave it at that. And it was a fascinating uh, part of the book. Uh, so I thank, thank you for doing all that great research. Well, last question. Uh, if you drew a lesson from this entire saga, what would it be? I have two. One is use CACs. Number two is get along with the IMF. My personal view, because people love to talk about architecture and fixing the architecture and problems with architecture, is the biggest problem in sovereign debt is that countries don't go to the IMF fast enough. You have cases where countries delay two to three years when they're in trouble, when they're in debt trouble, digging themselves deeper in the hole so the country is in worse shape and creditors are worse off. So I think the software matters. The software of getting along and getting these negotiations done is really the most important message of my book. But once you have collective action clauses, the powerful ones, the 2014 ICMA caps you worked on, you really have a great tool. Is it eventually enough? It took 100 years to figure out U.S. corporate bankruptcy. You know, it's still evolving. There'll still be changes. The discussions are helpful and fruitful, but CACs are very powerful. And my focus now is on the software. And I hope people, by 
reading the book and learning how the game is played, who the characters are and what their issues are, can maybe play it a bit better next time. Well, thanks for that. Of course, um, a lot of the debt problems that are being dealt with now involve official debt in low-income countries, which is a different animal. But hopefully, you're right that these enhanced caps will be very powerful. And uh, of course, they also don't apply to syndicated loans and a, and a bunch of other things, but um, they're definitely a useful innovation. So, uh, well, we should wrap it up. I want to commend you again for a fantastic book, uh, Default, the Landmark Court Battle Over Argentina's $100 Billion Debt Restructuring. Again, it's a fascinating book. Thanks, Greg Bakoff, for joining me. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm honored to be interviewed by you, and it's been a pleasure talking. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the OMFIF podcast. If you found today's conversation engaging, make sure to stay tuned for additional thought-provoking discussions on worldwide finance, economics, and policy by subscribing to our channel. Stay connected of the latest developments by following us on our LinkedIn page, OMFIF Economic and Monetary Policy Institute.